the Modern Chemistry Podcast with your host, Paul Orange. Hello there, and welcome to episode number 16 of the show. This episode, we dig back into glycobiology, and I think this makes a really nice companion episode to our interview with Elisa Fadder, which we put out a few months ago. Today's guest is uh, Dr. Benjamin Schumann, who is head of the chemical glycobiology lab at the Francis Crick Institute in London. And Ben's working on really trying to interpret the glycobiome, the glycoproteome, using a series of precision tools um, that really help him dig into how sugars on protein molecules impact the processes of living cells. I would really strongly recommend that you check out Ben's website and in particular follow through to look at some of the publications listed there as the graphical description of the tools he uses and the experimental approach is uh, very easy to understand maybe comes across a little bit more straightforward than trying to describe it in audio but that said this is still a really great discussion Uh, Ben talks about some of the challenges in working in glycobiology um, but also some of the great opportunities that lie ahead with what is a relatively untouched field and where there's a lot still to study so without any further introduction i'll just hand you straight over to the interview with ben and i'll be back right at the end to say goodbye so welcome to the modern chemistry podcast and i'm delighted to welcome our guest this time and it's ben schumann and ben is a group leader at the Francis Crick Institute in London and also has a lecture position at Imperial College and he is a physical science group leader heading up the chemical glycobiology lab at the Francis Crick Institute. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for the invitation. Looking into the research you do in the area that you work in, it, it, it's, it's one of those areas where you could spend forever reading about it and you know, it, it's super interesting. A topic we often get onto towards the end of these shows is you know how science is really interdisciplinary these days but maybe i'd like to start there because that was one of the things that really struck me about what you do my my take on it was you've got hardcore biochemistry at the center of what you do but there's chemistry there's in biology there's disease i mean there's so much stuff going on here so how do you think about that and the, the connectivity of everything that you work on well, carbohydrates are an interesting topic when you get into multidisciplinarity because, and this is becoming more and more obvious because we have so amazing techniques to understand other biomolecules, right? We can sequence DNA easily so we get a good idea into the genomics. Uh, we, we have great tools to analyze the transcriptome and we have great tools to analyze the proteome. But glycosylation is still kind of a void sphere somewhere in between these. Um, and that's despite kind of decades of amazing work by colleagues who have kind of really pioneered work into the glycosciences. Mm-hmm. But m- many of these techniques are really not that amenable to studying glycans, at least not in kind of the throughput and the sensitivity that you would um, look into proteins and, and mm-hmm. uh, take acids. And so I think compared to other biomolecules, chemical tools probably have a bit of higher significance, um, but also some of the challenges associated with analyzing glycans um, make it possible that once you develop a tool for glycobiology, a chemical tool, and you kind of you know, invent a new tag or a new reagent or so, it's almost very easily transferable to other biomolecules. I think it's fair to say that. Right. So if you optimize something that works for glycans, it probably also works for many other <laughs> molecules and biomolecules. And so, so I think that's where the role of chemistry comes into play. But at the same time, there's still so much we don't know that you know, through quite small steps in chemical innovation, we can kind of take huge strides forward in understanding how processes work. And so my own expert, or my own background comes into this because I've, I studied biochemistry initially, um, and that was mainly because at school I was interested in kind of uh, metabolic pathways and so on, and I thought biochemistry is the way to go for. Um, 
but I also had an actual chemistry. And so that was even further developed through, bio, through studying biochemistry because I was lucky enough to be in an undergraduate course, which was quite chemistry heavy, especially in, in organic chemistry. Mm. And so I was able to develop this a little bit further. And then in my um, PhD, I wanted to do something that really, you know, hardcore chemical synthesis. And so I joined the lab of Peter Seeberger in Berlin, were, um, who uh, supported me in kind of the desire to go from biochemistry to chemical synthesis and see well, we'll see where you go, where you go. And I think we were both happy with the outcome <laughs> of this um, because I was able to kind of spend a couple of years just doing synthesis in the lab and working with amazing people there. Uh, but then also um, to take the molecules that I made in the lab and use them in, in biological assays. And so that's something that you probably don't see very often because not everyone has the capacity to do that within the same lab, although that's becoming more and more common. Um, and so then I somehow became a jack of all trades, I think. Um, and so then in my postdoc in the Bertozzi lab at Stanford, I was able to kind of just use that and put this to, to use to kind of make tools, use them in, in biochemistry. And so by that time, and also in, in the Bertozzi lab, it was quite normal that people would make their own molecules and use them um, in, in assays and biology and to understand how glycosylation works. And that's really what we, we carrying forward at the Francis Crick Institute. And the Crick is obviously a biomedical research institute. So um, we are comfortable making the tools that we need that we have. We always have a, a biological question at the core of what we're doing. It would be weird if we didn't at that, in that environment because you can work with all these amazing biologists and clinician scientists and so on. So um, kind of making the right tools to address the right questions, I think is what we, what we want to do. And because and, you mentioned tools, there's also, I think it's on your, I got this from your like profile page on the Francis Crick website. It's, I don't know, it's like a mission statement or goal of the lab says, we use synthetic precision tools to understand how particular carbohydrate molecules control processes in and on the living cell. And you said, you know, you're tying that back to some sort of process that's taking place or a disease state or something. Now, I started reading about this. Um, I think this is fascinating. So c- could you sort of explain some of those precision tools and also, you know, what kind of the, the, the innovation and, as you said, how some of these techniques, because you can apply them to carbohydrates, you know, why they're innovative and, 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 and how they help us understand that ultimately then either a disease process or a normal process in a cell because, um, yeah, this, this was the stuff that got me kind of lost in uh, reading up on this. Yeah, so if you want to understand how a glycan works in a physiological process, there are several ways to analyze uh, this. But for example, if you want to understand if a certain, if a certain sugar structure is implicated in you know, cancer formation or so, there are several ways to do that. Um, traditionally using antibodies or lectins, which are carbohydrate binding proteins to kind of see if that sugar is on. And again, there's been amazing work through decades um, in kind of profiling these sugars, especially associated with cancer formation or with um, different developmental stages in profiling these. Um, And there's a lot of things you can do with these techniques. Um, They are a little biased towards the sequence you want to analyze, because if you have an antibody recognizing a certain sugar, then it will recognize that sugar and maybe a couple of others, but not too many. Mm -hmm. If you want to come from the other, from let's say, like a I don't know, call it an bottom-up approach where you want to understand, you know, which sugar structures are found on a cancer cell versus a, uh, a benign cell. That's also possible to a certain extent, and people and techniques are certainly getting better. Mm. But that's a, an area where chemical tools are quite important because you can take a sugar, um, a single sugar, which is the monosaccharide, which will normally enter the cell surface sugar structures when you feed it to a cell and you can put a chemical tag on there and that chemical tag is amenable to bioorthogonal chemistry which is a um, type of chemistry that allows you to unify two moieties together by a covalent bond in the presence of you know a biological environment that can be cell culture media or the cytosol or a cell lysate or even a living organism um, and also, these reactions are getting better, and many people are developing them. And we're really kind of grateful to the whole field in pushing this forward. Um, but what that, that lets you do is really complementary to these traditional binding assays with lectins and antibodies, because then 
you can kind of come in in a more unbiased way and profile and kind of ask the question, you know, without, without knowing from the outset, what sugar structures do I find on the cell and where do I find them? Mm-hmm. And I think, again, like, I think this is a, a huge space which complements other techniques. So we're working with uh, colleagues who are coming from the other side, from the more kind of traditional microbiology side, and kind of see what we can benchmark our data against each other. And that's, that's been working really good. The one thing that it didn't do initially was profile lichen structures with great specificity. And so you get some specificity in binding from antibodies and lectins, but you don't get them from chemical tools. But sometimes you want to have that specificity. For example, you want to, you know that certain glycosyltransferases are regulated in a certain cancer. But you, since that's an enzyme, it's, you can't easily correlate on why this is. Uh, with expression levels. So just knowing that it's upregulated doesn't tell you what it does. And you also can't really tell this by kind of these traditional binding assays with antibodies and lectins, because once a glycosotransferase has acted in the biosynthesis of a protein, then all other glycosotransferases have also acted. So that process of glycoprotein biosynthesis is kind of a black box towards many of the things you want to do, right? So what you get is the, you're getting the, the protein once it's made, but you, you don't know, you know, which of those sometimes, you know, hundreds of glycosylation sites was introduced by the glycosotransferase you're interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think this was something that, um, again, was a black box for ages. And this was a project that had started in Bertosi lab in the early 2000s. So it was a 20-year-long effort um, to make chemical tools that might be specific for certain types of transferases. And um, again, since this was 20 years, uh, this was way before my time, right? So this is really, this, this started at a time where people started to engineer other enzymes and kinases, um, mm-hmm. for example, to accommodate selectively inhibitors or substrates. And so that idea was born in the Bertosi lab to make this immunable to glycosotransferases. Um, but the, the technique wasn't, wasn't ready, or the, we weren't ready at the time to carry this out because there's a couple of prerequisites that you need for such a technique to work. Um, one of them being that in order to, um, to understand glycosylation structures in such detail, you need very sensitive mass spectrometers, which at the time weren't really there. So only in the last you know, five, six, seven years, we've had the capacity to really look into detail into particular glycosylation sites. The other thing is that the approach that would be taken would be to engineer a glycosotransferase that would normally bind a, a sugar donor, mm-hmm. an activated form of, of a sugar, and look into the crystal structure of that protein and find spots, find amino acids that are in close proximity to the sugar, mutate those to smaller amino acids, that, and that makes some room in the active site for chemical modification. And so that chemical modification can then also carry a bioorthogonal tag, so it can be transferred to the right glycoprotein and you can trace back that oscillation. But there weren't many crystal structures uh, on the particular family of enzymes that people were interested in. I think the first crystal structure came in 2006, um, and even then it was quite hard to understand where you want to mutate. So, um, and there are many issues in te- technology development that made life easier once we went further, like chemoenzymatic synthesis of uh, these sugar donors got, uh, became more tractable. We suddenly had CRISPR to knock out the native glycosotransferase. Mm-hmm for example. And, and so all these developments in, in technology kind of make the, the stars align at a certain point mm-hmm. um, so that we could actually kind of go after this and carry it out not only in vitro. That was already a huge undertaking by people who, who were in the producer lab before me, um, but also then in the living cell. Mm-hmm. And this has worked so well, much better than I would have thought, um, this might be have been a stupid thing to say. But, um, <laughs> uh, this works so well that now we can say, you know, we have we have this tool, and it works so well for a certain family of like so transferase that we can start, you know, building databases and understand which type of constellation sites are introduced mm-hmm. by which which enzyme. And mm-hmm. so then, 
uh, potentially correlate this with you know which of the constellations that might be it might be important for cancer formation. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that was one of the things that I was sort of interested in when I was doing some of this research was, you know, I always on on the show, one of the things is, you know, how does this relate to modern life? So I was kind of looking at what are the processes where glycosylation and, and the carbohydrate structure is important. And I think the easiest question to answer is which processes aren't reliant upon that. So I think something that reminded, you know, in the research, it kind of reminded me that your blood type is essentially determined by the glycosylation pattern on uh, on proteins so it's hugely important some of the sort of material said that when you get this glycosylation happening although you can predict the residues and you know the the chemical linkage it's not always easy to say it's this particular serine or threonine if it's an oglycan but it's 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 a serine or threonine uh, is the work you're doing now getting to the point of saying, oh, so this enzyme will add this sugar to this, you know, this specific number residue? Is it is it helping to get, as, as you said, more of a playbook and a guide for how this all works? Yeah, um, I think yes. Right. <laughs> the answer is yes. I think that's where we want, where we want to be at a certain point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you can also ask a question that's a bit more broad. It's basically, um, you know that these transferase enzymes are important for certain states in health and disease. And it's not only cancer. There are many other um, disorders that are reliant upon dysfunctional glycosotransferases. Um, and knowing which glycosylation sites they introduce is great. But in, in many ways, we also don't know what the protein targets are. Right. Um, oh, right. So, so without even without even kind of going into too much detail about what's the serine or threonine, mm. already knowing kind of which proteins are modified by these types of transferases, that's already um, something that we don't really know because again, it's there are glycosotransferase families, and the the family we're interested in, the garlic T glycosotransferases, um, there are twenty different isoenzymes, and and they all act in the secretory pathway, right? So something between you know the protein being um, first translated and biosynthesized mm. uh, in the cytosol or into the endoplasmatic reticulum, and then it traffics through the secretory pathway to be secreted or end up on the cell surface. Mm-hmm. And in that process, you know, many of these 20 isoenzymes plus many other glycosotransferases act. And what we see when we express a protein is the end result, but mm-hmm. we don't see, we don't really see any anything in between. Mm-hmm. So from the end result, it, we just it's just very difficult to kind of trace back about which sugar structure was introduced by which enzyme. And, um, and so in that respect, already knowing what the protein substrates are, even without knowing the particular serine or threonine, um, that's already a success. Mm-hmm. And we can also go more into detail. And um, I'm kind of putting these forward as two different aspects because they would need different... Um, depths in terms of the uh, mass spec technology that we need. And so the more detailed you get, the more effort you have to put into the mass spectrometry. And so um, then it becomes a bit more challenging. And you also need very capable people to analyze these data. So we're working with my colleague Stacey Malaka, who has her lab at Yale University, who is like a guru in... um, looking at mass spectra and understanding which sugar structure is where mm-hmm. and many other things. Um, so we're working with her and she's educating us into kind of analyzing and validating the, the spectra we're getting mm-hmm. through, through these mass spectrometry techniques because you still need um, people who are really competent in analyzing these spectra. It's not, it's not um, automated in a way it is for, for proteins alone, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and what is, and what specifically then are, are some of those challenges? I mean, I'm personally a little bit familiar with sort of you know protein identification through mass spectrometry, but probably many years ago, and I'm sure things have moved yeah. on a lot. Um, I know um, Elisa Fada, who we had on the show, who I think recommended that we, we speak to you. You know, she she spoke about some of the challenges of looking at carbohydrates and glycans compared to other biological molecules because they're highly flexible and, and, mm. and in motion a lot more. So what are some, what are some of those challenges that, you know, make it more difficult than say a, a protein or, or something like that? Yeah. So, um, 
multiple. And when I talk to people who are not in this field, to biologists in that field, and I explain some of the challenges, and <laughs> we're just like, we're just asking why do you, why you know why the hell do you want to do this? <laughs> um, yeah. But it's also intriguing because we don't know much about these molecules, mm. and so um, part of the reason is that some of the of the glycoproteins, which are highly glycosylated. Um, might not be very amenable to proteolytic digest. So when you do, when you have a proteome and you want to understand, you know, which proteins are in there, um, like in a cell lysate, for example, you would normally chop up the proteins with um, kind of off-the-shelf proteases. Trypsin is the best one because mm. it generates peptides which have a positive charge, um, and so which, because it cleaves um, after lysins and arginines, and um, in many of these glycoproteins, especially mucins, which are high, highly glycosylated glycoproteins, mm. um, you simply don't find any lysins and arginines in the, in the domain you're interested in. So that's mm. a very trivial challenge. And then people would tend to use alternative proteases, and those tend to generate peptides which aren't as highly charged, so mm. they're difficult to analyze. And then they also have lots of glycosylation sites on, and that makes it already difficult to see them by mass spectrometry because they don't fly well. Mm -hmm. um, there has been some work by um, a group leader who he was a group leader in, in the Seewerger lab when I was there, Daniel Kularis, he's now in Australia. And they've done some work where they synthesized peptides and associated glycopeptides. And I think you see that once you have a glycan on a peptide, you see a drastically re reduced capacity to, to ionize these and for them to, to be able to be spotted by mass spectrometry. And so once you have a peptide with like four or five glycosylation sites on, it just, it's just very difficult to see them by mass spectrometry. That's one of the things. Um, the other is then once you have these four or five glycosylation sites, they can be elaborated in different, in slightly different ways. So there's some heterogeneity about what the glycans actually are. And that dilutes your signal a lot, right? So you have, you know, five glycosylation sites. Each of them could be potentially, you know, any of like three or four or up to 20 different structures. Um, and so that really makes it difficult. It doesn't make it a homogeneous entity, which you would have on a peptide, but in glycopeptides, you know. Um, and so those are some of the issues we are, we are facing. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's just... It just means that there is a whole part of the proteome that we we are not able to see by mass spectrometry, and that's a bit concerning, right? Because mm -hmm. and there's there's a lot of biological insight that we're basing on proteomes. Mm -hmm. But if there's a, a part of the proteome that we can't see, then you know we we just really only we don't get a complete picture at all. Right, right, and and that was kind of going to be one of my questions, and because I think something you alluded to earlier on is we, we have these tools for studying things like DNA and proteins in particular. Um, you know, we can sequence the genome in a ridiculously short amount of time these days. I mean, as you said, we're then making connections. You know, is is the, is the glycome the last frontier in truly understanding? You know, biological processes in in their entirety and. You know, do, do you foresee that we will get to a point where we can study the glycobiome as easily as we can the proteome or the genome? Uh, as easily, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. um, but it makes us inventive, right? It makes us creative in getting new techniques working. And I said earlier that once you have something that works for glycobiology, especially mm -hmm. in the context of chemical tools, it also works for other types of, of biology. So uh, again, I think it, it is a it, it kind of makes the field a sandpit for developing developing tools and developing ideas and so on. Mm -hmm. It's probably, it will take a while, um, if at all, we will ever be able to do for glycans what we're able to do for DNA right now. I, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not convinced that this is ever going to happen. But the question is always... Um, it, there is something to be said about a field where you need innovation to drive it because that innovation will also be useful for, for other things. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think I'm actually quite happy to kind of work on something where you don't know much and you, the, the fruits are hanging fairly low in terms mm -hmm. of getting, um, getting new methods out. Um, we, we published a paper earlier this year that 
literally it took three weeks between conception of the work to submission of the paper. Wow. We, we, we basically used, we, we kind of took bits and pieces from, you know, from colleagues and collaborators um, and had an idea about how to, um, how to uh, increase our capacity to sequence glycopeptides by mass spectrometry. Um, and so we would use chemically modified sugars, uh, which is kind of our daily bread. Mm. And instead of introducing by these bioorthogonal reactions, like a fluorophore, so you can see them on, on the cell surface, for example, or a, a biotin tag, which means that you're able to enrich for these glycopeptides, um, we would introduce a positively charged moiety, which is good for mass spectrometry in many mm -hmm. ways, especially for tandem mass spectrometry if you want to sequence these glycopeptides. And so we're not the first um, lab to have thought about introducing a positive charge into biomolecules, not, not by a long shot. Um, but I think the combination of these chemical tools, um, introducing a bioorthogonal handle and using a positively charged tag on it um, makes this approach quite attractive. And so, again, Stacy, uh, my friend and colleague in here, and, and myself, we thought about this and we thought, well, we, we can do this. And we have, you know, um, great people in the lab and we have great technical capacity, so let's do it. And it was literally as straightforward as synthesizing a couple of glycopeptides, mm -hmm. putting on different tags, working with, um, with colleagues, with Carmen Galan in, uh, in Bristol who sent us there, the molecule, and was all for it. It's, let's just try it. Um, and, and then just trying it, and it worked really well. And so then within no time, we had a paper. And so it <clears throat> kind of shows you that this is a field where relatively straightforward ideas can have a huge impact. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and because we're still fairly early days, the, the impact of those is, 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 is bigger. So something you mentioned that I was interested in as well, in the, and I, 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 I think the, paper that I, I read you know one of your most recent publications again um uh, just for the audience um if you're interested check out ben's um page on the francis crick uh website um and it, all the papers are listed there there's a there's a diagram of the um of the process with these modified transferase enzymes and there's one thing i was going to ask you touched on it there is you know what's the range of tags that you can attach and and the kind of things you can use and also i think you mentioned fluorophores there biotin for enrichment and then, you know, something to give a, a positive charge in the mass spec. Um, I, I mean, essentially, you're limited by your imagination to a certain extent. Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, this is a space that it's, the things that have been done are quite functional in terms of, you know, we want to pull this down or we want to visualize this, but really sky's the limit, right? Um, Pongu at Scripps had a paper earlier this year was it last year already? Um, where they have, I think, introduced a whole antibody through some similar techniques, mm -hmm. uh, fuse it onto the cell surface. Um, so, you know, large molecules, you can theoretically do this. Um, mm -hmm. The Bertosi lab, they have, they have made great use of bioorthogonal chemistry, obviously, um, uh, but to make um, you know, fusion molecules between antibody and, um, and enzymes so you can use an antibody against a cancer target and, and also at the same time the enzyme that's fused to the antibody to kind of um, modify the cell surface and that's used by bioorthogonal chemistry although it's not in this instance not um, a glyco story but you know it's it is it is a great way of unifying two moieties in a cellular background mm -hmm. and so it's i think in terms for chemical biology and therefore for tool development um, it has been one of the most transformative technologies, I think. Mm -hmm. And people are, are really creative in developing new um, bioorthogonal tools. We largely take them off the shelf to you know, address the biological questions we're interested in. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's, it, I think it's, it's a great space to be in. Yeah, yeah. And uh, picking up on what you just said there as well, like the, the biological questions, and you, you mentioned earlier, obviously, you know, the, 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 where you work is a very you know, multidisciplinary uh, institute in that respect. Um, and you've mentioned tumor biology already. Could you maybe just give us a little bit of an insight into, you know, the, the sort of the application or the, the, the processes that you're, you're looking into? The questions we are asking are, are in, mainly in basic biology. 
Mm-hmm. And so we want to understand what happens during tumorigenesis, for example. But also, there have been other physiological processes other than cancer that have been associated with these types of transferase being up or down regulated. Mm-hmm. Um, we people call congenital disorders of dicrosylation. So, you know, you have mutations um, in one of these types of transferases that kind of lead them to have reduced activity. And so that leads to um, a phenotype, like mm-hmm. a dysfunction in a patient. But we, again, we don't, often don't really know why this is. Um, mm-hmm. Or at least it's quite difficult to understand or challenging to find out. Um, so people go to great lengths to study to study this. Um, and if there is a reporter, mm-hmm. we call this kind of reporter, a chemical reporter for the activity of an enzyme, um, it might be easier in, in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, most of our time is invested in truly relevant though. Um, we are we are kind of starting to make these to make databases where we kind of find out what the glycosylation sites are. But at the same time, we know of the limitations that we still have, right? For example, because of the still challenging mass spectrometry that I alluded to earlier, we do see glycosylation sites, but we, I don't think we see nearly as many as they are. Um, and so the whole process between introducing the chemical tool, which I think works very well, and the mass spec, which is also quite sensitive, I think in, during that process, there is a lot of, there are a lot of steps which I think can be optimized. And again, there are lots of groups who are working um, to that end, which is super helpful for us. Um, and so, so then, you know, the, the question that I am asking is, instead of seeing 10 glycopeptides, can we see 100 at some, at some point or 1,000 maybe or so? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think once we're there, I think then we, you know, well, we, we can do things with the glycosylation sites that we see already. Um, and try to see if they have been found already. If they haven't, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Um, can we, you know, can we mutate them from a serine to to an alanine to see if that has an effect on on cellular function, for example? Mm-hmm. Um, so really, kind of basic biology and biochemistry to to try and understand these processes. Mm-hmm. Um, what this should lead to at a certain point, hopefully, would be you know something like a diagnostic, or if we know. The activity of the glycosyl transferase is you could think about things where you block interactions, mm-hmm. right? So there are glycosylation sites or glycans that are recognized by um, components of the immune system, which tend to make a cancer silence towards um, attack by its own immune system. Mm-hmm. So the question is, if you know where that interaction happens, can you block this and then exclude this process or uh, make this process less likely mm-hmm. um, and turn on immunity against against the cancer. And so there's always, there are always applications down the road. Mm. And, and it, it was interesting, and, and, you know, maybe this is a, an unfair question to ask you, but again, in my background reading, some the disease states that kind of came up most commonly associated, you know, widely reported with um, changes in glycosylation with cancer, diabetes and Alzheimer's. And those are all diseases where now the immune system is thought to play, failures in the immune system is part to, thought to play an increasing role. And, you know, we talked about blood type and, and the fact that a lot of these glycosylated proteins, you know, end up in the cell surface. So they're clearly going to play a role in, you know, identification of the cell as what it is or, or what it isn't. So you, do you think then that, that like this immune system interaction for something like cancer, where you sort of say you turn off that shielding, you know, could, could lead us to a state where there's a, you know, a drug you take stops an activity of a particular enzyme and then actually that doesn't in any way help the disease grow or slow the disease progression. What actually does that is the immune system then saying, okay, these cells shouldn't be here. We're going to attack them, you know, which is a little bit like some other cell therapies that are, you know, in development and on the market today. Yeah, I, I think so. I think that's a fair point, a fair thing to say. Um, I think a cancer cell invests a lot of effort making itself you know, silent from the immune system, right? There are changes that have to happen on the cell surface once a, um, between a cell being healthy and being a tumor cell. Otherwise, it wouldn't, you know, get into the bloodstream and in circulation and then form metastases that can't happen without changes on the cell surface. And glycosylation is one of these, the fundamental changes which happen in almost all tumor cells. Um, but these changes mean that uh, 
normally that would make them less self-like. So you know, the immune system is very good at spotting things that are um, that look that don't look like uh, they come from our own body. The changes in glycosylation um, might look like that. So a cancer invests a lot, a lot of a lot of effort into making itself silent from um, from these from immune attack. And glycosylation again plays a, a crucial part in this. Yeah, and I suppose it's, it's sort of like letting my mind wander off into the future. You could even, you know, maybe see if you've got individuals who are at risk of cancer, you know, they could prophylactically take something to block the activity of this enzyme so that, you know, tumor cells as they arise or precancerous cells as they arise, you know, are taken out before they get, you know, a chance to form. So uh, this is, uh, you know, a, a very potentially exciting avenue, isn't it? But yeah, I mean, you're right. It's uh, you know we we know that these changes occur. Um, we are getting a grip on identifying identifying when they occur. Um, but the expression of these enzymes, um, this this uh, over or uh, over expression or downregulation of these enzymes, um, is a might be a good indication. Yeah, but for that you need a good you need a good way to diagnose. Piece, right, so you wouldn't. You only see overexpression in a cancer if there's already a cancer that you can see. Right, if there's already something, if you already suspect that there's that there is a structure that might be a cancer, right. So then you need to look for things that are in circulation, for example. Mm -hmm. Again, there are lots of people who develop these also for um, related to plaquettes, and there are NHS-approved biomarkers for um, for several types of cancer that are related to either very highly glycosylated proteins or glycans themselves. Well, so something I've been arguing with some of my friends is, you know, if one thing the last couple of years has shown us is that if we want to, and we have a diagnostic test, we can get it out to the entire general population very easily. So, you know, you could almost imagine a diagnostic test that you take every year or something, if you've got a particular marker or, you know, you just take as part of a general health check, and you know it identifies those things but um yeah i sorry i that is absolutely a flight of fantasy about <laughs> you know where where this could go um so so ben i think one last thing that i wanted to 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 ask you about was was again going a little bit more broad so so the work you do and you've used the term already it's like chemical biology um in my head, I have an understanding of what I think that is, but um, what, in the, in the broadest sense, does that mean, and and and, and you know, and, and how is it used, and, and are there other areas that you can point to that are examples of the sort of the chemical biology approach? That's a, a very interesting question. Um, it's also not a question that's that easy to answer because, and I, I'm seeing this as I, in a certain so committees and. Um, trying to set up lecture courses in chemical biology and the question what is chemical biology comes up quite often um, mm -hmm. and there are very different ways to to define it um, in a broader sense you know the, classically it has been the use of chemical tools to uh, define understand uh, or perturb biology mm -hmm. right? um, but that's quite broad um, I think the, the power of chemical biology is that you can titrate biology. You can associate um, concentrations of a compound with a cellular effect. Mm -hmm. And that's something that's, I mean, difficult to do traditionally in, in biology, right? Um, and, and I think that's, again, like that's the power of chemical biology. Um, it does feed into drug discovery, obviously, because then once you can perturb things, then you can look into um, how to make a drug against it. But um, I think chemical biology inherently seeks, seeks to understand. Mm -hmm. and, and does it, so does chemical biology inherently mean that your work, you're doing or you're applying your chemistry to a living organism, whether you know, in vivo or in vitro, or, or, or is it, as you say, just trying to understand or maybe alter the system? Um, I mean, I think that's, probably the goal of most chemical biologists mm -hmm. but it doesn't start there usually right when you make a new tool uh, normally for example if you make a new reagent the first thing you would 
you want to see if it if it's if what it reacts with. So you mm -hmm. would put in a test tube together with a couple of um, putative uh, reactants, right? So that's quite far away from using it in the living cell yet. Uh, and I'm quite a fan of thoroughly characterizing the tools one, one makes. Um, because if, there's a couple of instances where also we have seen that, you know, the, uh, we thought the tool was a good one until we figured out there's a lot of stuff that happens in the cell. And, uh, but this is only possible because we have the capacities now to look things that you know people weren't able to look for 10 years ago um but anyway it, it does start with in vitro work in, with a test tube and then um once you're quite confident that your new um, bioorthogonal functional group for example does what it should in a test tube then um you know, the next step is to take it maybe into a cellulite and see if it kind of reacts with proteins or so, um, whatever, depending on what you're, what you're interested in, in a cell isolate, if you can kind of pull out the protein you're supposed to interact with. Uh, and then afterwards, you would go maybe into the living cell, and once it works there, you, there might be an opportunity to kind of go into an organism if you have a valid question to ask there. So it's, it's the whole breadth, I think. Uh, but I also wanted to say that there is a large aspect of... Um, chemical biology, which is also chemical biology, which is classically been called um, uh, bioorganic chemistry, <laughs> uh, which is a little bit the other way around, right? Using, making use of biology to do something that you would otherwise do in chemistry. Right. Chemoenzymatic synthesis are a prime example of this. And we do that in our lab also. Um, for glycans, that's actually a, very, a great way to make, to make um, sugars now because Glycosyltransferases are being more and more well described mm. um, in many ways, for especially for glycan structures that you find in mammals. Um, chemoenzymatic syntheses are now much faster than classical chemical syntheses in, in, in most ways. Mm. It's because enzymes have found a really good, you know, uh, there's no need for protecting groups if you have an enzyme then, that can introduce uh, the sugar structure at a particular point. Mm -hmm. so, so enzymes have that inherent specificity that you would otherwise get through protecting groups and through um, steering the stereoselectivity of a glycosylation reaction. Um, and so I think that's, um, that's a huge field now and has, has been made, is being made to, to great use also. Mm -hmm. No, I, that, that's something I agree with. And that's something that put my company hat on for a moment. We see a lot in our customers as well. So yeah. Totally agree. Using using the biology to make useful stuff is you know is 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 only growing in importance. Yeah, for for glycans though, I think where it still hits a little bit of a um, of a boundary is um, for unusual sugars, mm -hmm. like things where you haven't where you don't have a glycosyltransferase yet, um, and so that can be either um, sugar structures which might be um, artificially optimized to fit a certain need. Like I think. In the context of vaccines, I think that might be important. Right? So, mm -hmm. uh, glycoconjugate vaccines are kind of some of the most, actually, some of the most successful um, products by some some companies, right? So, um, pneumococcal vaccines, for mm -hmm. example, or meningococcal vaccines, um, are mostly glycoconjugate vaccines will conjugate a, a sugar to a protein to uh, develop an immune response against that sugar. And um, but then you want to direct an immune response against the bacterial glycan, and so that for that bacterial glycan, there's you would often not find a suitable glycosyltransferase that uh, introduces um, or kind of makes the, the right connections. Other people are working on this, so then chemical synthesis becomes really important. Um, and also, I think at scale and process scale, right? If you have optimized those reactions, then chemical synthesis is still really unparalleled. I think. Mm -hmm. So when you want to go to, um, to get to a point where you can make it like a conjugate vaccine that works well against a vaccine-preventable disease and, you, and it's safe enough and you kind of want to you know, get into clinical trials, um, then I think chemical synthesis is, is one of the great ways um, forward. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, but also some of these sugars will be labeled towards certain... Um, of environments or certain you know, conjugation reactions mm -hmm. or so when you conjugate sugar to protein. Mm -hmm. And so then 
the power of chemical synthesis to make analogs of these sugars that are not laid out towards these conditions, right? And so and that's something that um, still enzymes sometimes struggle with, right? So, so chemical synthesis has a legitimate <laughs> uh, right to be, in, to be in that space and is, is greatly useful. Yeah, and, and uh, yes, and, and I think if you know anybody listening is not quite sure of some of the impact this has, you know, if you think about biological drugs, so any monoclonal drug antibody recombinant protein, the glycosylation protein, sorry, the glycosylation pattern of that finished drug is an incredibly important QC step, and batches can fail because, as you said, during the purification or production process, it's gone through a hostile environment that the you know the sugars re don't react well to and you know you end up with a you know potentially a completely formed functional protein but it doesn't work as what it's intended to because the glycosylation is right yeah i mean those things are super important and that's interesting because this is where unexpectedly to me probably not to others this is where most interest comes in comes from into glycobiology so people who are interested in glycobiology um, from an industrial side or from kind of clinical side, are mostly interested in antibody glycosylation just because of the uh, the advent of these of antibody therapies, right? Um, and and it's quite obvious if you think about it, but you know, like to me, it wasn't before this all came up. wasn't necessarily. Uh, you know, I kind of always wondered why why so many why there are so many people working on um, optimizing okay, kind of cellular glycoengineering. So you kind of optimize a cell line, like a chill cell line, for example, to have the right set of glycosotransferases to make a homogenous um, glycosylation type. But then it's obvious if you think about it from an antibody perspective, because you want to make, to want, we want to use these cell lines to make uh, biotherapeutics and they have to have um, as homogenous glycoforms as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ben, um, I'm aware of time and we've covered a lot. Was there anything we didn't talk about that you wanted to mention or feel we should talk about with the audience? I think, I mean, so one of the things that um, I was fortunate um, to have, and I, I think that's kind of a little bit inherent to multidisciplinary science is um, to have your great support by mentors from different fields. So I think mm -hmm. you unify a lot of, a lot of views from a lot of different people. And so uh, I, I just wanted to mention that what I really found important was to um, to have mentors from different backgrounds. Um, obviously, this definitely includes the supervisors. So without um, Peter Seeberger and uh, Carolyn Bertozzi, uh, I, I don't think I don't think we would be doing the science that we can do, and I don't think I would be able to kind of you know appreciate what's new and what's missing in, in the field, and also kind of carry out science in the way we do, right? Um, being, being motivated to seek for, for, for whatever has, has not been done yet and, and ask the right questions. Um, but also to kind of give that forward to the next generation, right? So I think we try to model our lab after, um, you know, the, all the positive things that I've experienced in my, uh, in my career so far. And, and so I think, I just wanted to mention that I think this is a very important fact going forward, and um, yeah, being being uh, recognized as a team was one of these things. Where we we won an RC award this year, which was a award basically to the whole team that um, contributed to making these chemical precision tools work. And so that includes I don't know, like fifty different people who were all part of making this work. So um, I think. This is multidisciplinarity as it should be. Mm. Um, you know, very positive situation, very positive experience with with views from from all kinds of different uh, different people um, with different backgrounds. It's interesting you mention that Ben because I have another interview recorded which we haven't put live yet um, uh, with uh, uh, Monica Perez Temprano and. Uh, she again felt very strongly that you know one of the key duties is to pass on good mentoring um and and to get that that skill within the people and to make those connections um so yeah i and i agree completely with with both both you and monica on that one I, yeah absolutely so ben um if people want to check out your research or look you up where's the best place for them to make a start 
Uh, I think our website is a good way to start. Um, so at the Francis Crick Institute, you can just Google my name and Crick or so, and it should come up. Yeah, and um, we'll put a link in the show notes as well. But I yeah, concur, you can just Google Ben's name and it will come up. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the RSC are also producing kind of a media package on the Horizon Award. Um, mm-hmm. So that's, I think, going to be a summary for um, people who might not be too familiar with the, with the type of research. So, um, so I think that's going to be great. I've seen some of the material. I sent, I, I sent up some material and I've seen some kind of drafts and, and uh, it will be good, but it's not out yet, but soon. Okay, well, congratulations on the award. And I don't think, uh, I think we can, can't wait to see it. Um, and I would say to anybody who's been listening, if, if you're at all interested, I would check out um, Ben's website. There's lots of interesting links, but, you know, give yourself an afternoon because you will sort of fall into uh, clicking one thing after another. Um, ben. It's a, it's a nice rabbit hole to fall into. Yeah, it, it certainly is. I, I agree. I've got pages and notes in front of me and um, I think we, we skimmed over a very small amount. Uh, ben, um, firstly, I want to thank you very much for your time this morning. Um, and it has been a fascinating uh, discussion. Um, you know, one of the privileges I get from doing this job is just to meet, you know, really clever people doing really amazing things. Um, and uh, you've kept the track record going. It's, uh, it's a real privilege from my side. And thank you for your time. Thank you so much for the invitation. That was a lovely discussion. Once again, I really want to thank Ben for the time he took to talk to me. Uh, Ben and I spoke towards the end of September 2021, and you'll know that Ben mentioned an award towards the end of our discussion. So by the time you listen to this, there may be more details out about that. Once again, I would really strongly recommend you check out Ben's website and have a look at some of the publications if you're interested in understanding some of the tools and approaches he uses in his research. I think this will likely be our last episode of 2021. So I guess it really only remains for me to wish you all a very happy festive season if you celebrate. Um, And if you don't, I hope you have a good winter period anyway. And I hope that we'll be back in 2022 with more interesting interviews and fascinating insights into how chemistry affects and impacts the modern world around us. So until we speak again, stay safe and stay well. And I'll catch you next time on the Modern Chemistry Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Modern Chemistry Podcast. Our theme music is provided by Kevin McLeod under a Creative Commons license. And if you subscribe to the show, you'll have the next episode drop straight into your podcast feed.